What is the meaning of it all? Why does the universe exist? Why is there life? Why does something so strange like a duck-billed platypus exist? And some of us think that religions hold the answers to these why questions. But do religions really possess answers that others don't? Does the Bible? Our why questions though are essentially questions about purpose. What are all these things for? What purpose do they serve? Many of us think that this is what Christianity answers, specifically through the creation narrative in the Bible. So that if we ask the creator of all things, what you make this for, we'll get an answer to its purpose, what its role is in the overall scheme of things, what benefit it provides us, or why it's necessary for our existence. Like an engineer explaining the importance of an interlock gear in this machine, a machine that produces us. But what if God's answer is, look, isn't it beautiful? Don't you just love it? Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important ideas, insights, and stories in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion, to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I'm Paul Sungwajung. And this is our third episode of the second season, The Genesis Creation Account Part 2. What is the purpose of it all? One thing we often get wrong when we are trying to make sense of the belief in God is the sheer scale and scope of the ideas that are involved. It's like we listen to a talk about our solar system and then go look for planets among the local landmarks in our neighborhood, or it's like someone speaking about the ground everything's standing on, and we think she's talking about the classroom floor. Our idea of God is too small. It's too narrow. This was the main problem that the very first episode of this series was grappling with. Many of us nowadays think that God is simply an entity, albeit one that's all-powerful and all-knowing, which we encounter only in religious experiences or when things happen that cannot be explained. We can encounter God that way, yes, but for Christianity, God is not an entity in our reality. God is the whole of reality that all of us are engaged with in all things and at all times. The question is, is reality we are engaged with who or what? Our view of God was too small. This was a problem again when we try to make sense of what it means to say that God speaks. Many of us think that it's simply about hearing a voice in a prayer or reading the Bible or perhaps experiencing the wonders of nature. It certainly can include those things, yes. But for Christianity, every truth is God speaking. Every truth in every era, in every area. It's because all of reality is God speaking through nature, history, or even our inward selves. Christians do believe that God speaks to us in a personal way through the Bible and in our own lives, but those cases belong to a special set within this far more comprehensive and all-encompassing idea of God speaking. Our understanding of God speaking thus was too narrow. The same kind of problem was at the root of our question about science and God. What if science discovers the complete set of the laws of nature that explains the universe, life, and everything? 
Does that mean that science would leave no place for God to be found? We ask this because we tend to think that God is only to be found in questions that science cannot explore, where science reaches its limits. And God is found there too, yes, but for Christianity, the laws of nature, and every rational principle underlying everything that happens and how everything comes to be, is God, or more specifically, what the Bible calls the Logos of God. It is God speaking. So, whatever principle or law that science discovers, whatever it has yet to discover, and even those it will never discover, are all God speaking. Our way of relating God to science was too limited. And this is still the problem when we try to make sense of the Genesis account of creation. Too often, we approach it by asking if this narrative somehow fits our current scientific account of the cosmos, such as the Big Bang, evolution, and so on. And if not, we think either the Bible or science has to go. But the world that Genesis describes is not the world of modern science in the 21st century, it is the world that the people in the biblical times imagined it in their cosmology. It is to those people and their view of the world that Genesis was speaking. Even when we realize this though, we tend to miss that for such people, things in the physical world were also something far more than what they are to us. Seed was something like the essence of life, what enables all life to propagate itself, Water was something like the physical substance of possibility. And they weren't just symbols of those things. They were those things. And once we understand what each feature of the physical world that God creates in Genesis meant to these people, we can then catch a glimpse of the sheer scale and scope of what this account was trying to describe. This was what we explored in our previous episode. We were translating the Genesis narrative into our concepts and level of understanding. And it was something like this. As Genesis opens, God first sets forth an infinite sea of possibilities, fathomless and inconceivable to our mind. Then God speaks to bring forth one possible world out of infinite others that it could have been. What kind of world? One where things exist, things that can be perceived and known, where things happen and time flows. God speaks again, and the world becomes one where different things can now exist because there is space between them. This space then separates the sea of possibilities into those that can be known and those that cannot. God speaks again, and the world now has tangible things with defined forms, and so dry land or the material world emerges. God then speaks to this world so that matter has the capability to bring forth life. This is what God creates in Genesis if you understand what the physical things in this account meant to the ancient Hebrews. Their view of the physical world is outdated, yes, but not their larger general ideas about what constitutes every world. A world is where things happen, time flows, things are separated by space and have forms, and life can emerge, and an infinite range of possibilities await. God created that. All of that is God speaking. And whether modern science is compatible with this account is not quite the right question to ask. It is compatible, but that's not the point. 
our scientific cosmology may, and likely will, become outdated just as one that the ancient Hebrews held, but the world that we will continue to live and explore will still be that world God creates in Genesis, a world that God speaks, a world of possibilities, events, things, forms, and life. So, our understanding of God and creation was too small. And there is one other question about Genesis where our views may likewise be too small and narrow. What is the meaning of it all? Go back to the opening verses of Genesis where God is about to speak to the dark, fathomless abyss of water, which represents the infinite possibility. God speaks, and that possibility becomes something. God brings forth a world, one that is defined by light. Yet what this account implies is that God could have spoken something else. A very different world could have been brought forth, or there could have been no world at all. So why this world? Why this kind of universe? What is the purpose of it all? And the way we came up with the answer was, we peeked ahead. How does Genesis creation account end? Well, with the creation of us. God created human beings in his own image, telling them to rule over every creature, which seems like a big deal. So we thought God created the universe for our sake. The universe is our nursery, so to speak, because God wanted conscious, intelligent creatures capable of forming a personal relationship with him. And those creatures needed a place to live. So the purpose for creating the world was for life to exist, so that creatures like human beings can eventually emerge and thrive. But this implied that there should be some signs of design in our universe. To be specific, designs to end up with us, or at least creatures like us. Surprisingly, it is contemporary cosmology that has raised the possibility that our universe is indeed designed. Scientists notice that the fundamental parameters and characteristics of our universe seem to be fine-tuned for life to exist. Now, for there to be any kind of life, there needs to be, at the very least, complex form of matter. And it also needs a hospitable environment which won't destroy that complexity. But if, say, gravity or strong or weak nuclear forces or electromagnetism, if any one of them was even slightly stronger or weaker than it actually is, none of that would exist. There would be no complex matter, nor stars, nor planets. And if after the Big Bang, the universe expanded slower than it did, it would have collapsed in on itself before life emerged. And if it expanded faster than it did, stars wouldn't have formed from which we get complex matter. And these are just some examples among many others that make it possible for our universe to sustain life. And we can't explain why so many physical parameters have such precise values that are needed for life to exist. As far as we know, they could have been different. This has led some scientists and philosophers to propose that the universe is fine-tuned by a divine designer or God so that life could exist. But there are, of course, other explanations. One is that there is a more fundamental principle that science has yet to discover, which will explain why these parameters are what they are and could not be any different. Then we wouldn't need an additional entity to tweak with these parameters. The other is that there are multiple universes. 
Some physicists have theorized that the laws of nature may generate many, many universes that have different parameters from each other. Most would not be able to sustain life. Some would last mere moments, but a lucky few, like ours, would have precisely the right kind of parameters. Now, there is no evidence that there are other universes. There is almost no way to test them, and the couple of times that we actually did, it came up negative. So there are even scientists who criticize the idea of the multiverse as not a scientific idea, but a philosophical one. But that does not mean that other universes do not exist. We just don't know yet. And if I seem sort of non-committal here, it's because I am. Whether the universe is fine-tuned is an interesting question to be sure. But for Christianity, it makes no significant difference to the belief in God. If the universe is fine-tuned, that is God speaking. If there is yet undiscovered fundamental principle, that is God speaking. If the laws of nature generate other universes, then that is God speaking. In each case, that would be what the Bible calls the Logos of God. Now whether God that speaks is personal, which is to say whether reality is who and not a what, is a different question altogether. But that may not be a question that scientific inquiry into nature will answer. It certainly wasn't how people in the Bible came to form their personal relationship with God. I'd say the question of fine-tuning holds significance rather for the atheists. If the universe is fine-tuned because it was designed for life to exist, then reality simply cannot be impersonal. It cannot be a what. It has to be a who. But it may very well be that a yet-to-be-discovered fundamental principle or the multiverse will explain why there is fine-tuning. My view of it is, the question of fine-tuning and design is for the atheist, sort of like how the question of evil is for those of us who believe in God. If God is good, why does evil exist? Now, if there's no answer to that, it raises serious problems for a belief in God. But there are answers why there can be evil when God is good. Episode 11 of the first season of this series alone already hinted at one of them. Yet these answers can still be questioned. The problem of evil is still something Christians wrestle with. Nor do our answers, even the very best ones, imply that atheists should believe in God. However, whether the universe is fine-tuned is important for Christianity for a very different reason. And this returns us to the question, what is the purpose of it all? Is the purpose of the universe to sustain life, specifically living things like us? Did God create the universe for our sake? Because if that's so, then even if our universe is fine-tuned for life, it seems very inefficient. If life is the purpose of the universe, then most of the physical universe is devoid of life. If we humans are the reason why God created the universe, then much of it has nothing to do with us. And scientifically, there is nothing in the evolutionary process that guarantees that life would eventually lead to producing sentient beings like humanity. But what if we were wrong from the start? What if the universe is not created for our sake? What if the purpose was something else entirely? What we often miss is that the Genesis creation account is actually quite clear on the purpose of creation. To be specific, God gives a reason for each thing God creates. 
Perhaps we shouldn't have skipped ahead to the end so quickly. On the fourth day, God speaks and brings forth the lights in the sky, the sun, moon, and the stars. And God says, Let them separate day from night and mark the seasons, years, and days and give light to the earth. What is the purpose of the sun, moon, and the stars? They are to be measures of time and to be sources of light. Now we've already explored how the separation of day and night signifies time itself and how for the ancient Hebrews, earth is not the planet earth, but something like the entire physical cosmos, the material world that have defined forms and shapes. And for them, sun, moon, and the stars were lights in the sky, yes, but also the manifestation of order and regularity that governed this cosmos. So if we put all of these together, what God spoke was something like this. I want there to be order in the universe, for the things in the heavens to move in ordered regular intervals in time and shine with light. And that is what stars and planets do. That's what they are. And according to Genesis, that is their purpose. On the fifth day, God speaks so that the waters of the sea bring forth living things and birds fly across the sky. Again, for the Hebrews, the sea and the sky were both the physical sea and the sky, but also the realms beyond the reaches and even understanding of humanity. God speaks so that life thrives there, including, interestingly, the great monsters of chaos that would be terrifying and disastrous to human beings. But we should attend to what God then says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. God's command for the living creatures were to multiply and fill the world, to live in every possible place that life can thrive, which is what life does. And I should add, it is precisely what the process of evolution accomplishes. That is what God wants living creatures to do. That is God's reason for creating living creatures. These two examples should already have hinted at a pattern. The purpose of each created thing, according to Genesis, is to be what God created them to be, that is, for things to be themselves. It's more than that, though. It's for there to be a world where they can do just that. Think back to the two things that God created first, light and the sky. We can deduce their purpose by what God does with it. God creates the light then separates light from darkness so that there is day and night, and with that, time comes into being. Or more specifically, things can happen in sequence, things that consciousness can perceive and know. Then God creates a sky and separates the fathomless water into two so that there is now above and below. This sky is space so that different things can exist, different entities, different realms, different possibilities. It is also literally space because sun, moon, and the stars are eventually placed there. So the reason why God created these first two things is for things to happen and happen in sequence and for there to be space for different things to exist, which is what a world is, any world, even the ones that cannot sustain any life. But God does create human beings at the end and blesses them. Doesn't that imply that we are the purpose of creation? Because everything God created led to us. Perhaps. And if it turns out that the universe is indeed fine-tuned for life, and there is no multiverse with different parameters, then we'd have more reason to think so. But as it is, the Genesis account is ambivalent. 
If humanity or even life was the purpose of creation, then it seems odd that the Genesis account would describe the reason God created each thing, and in most cases, these reasons had no bearing on whether life, let alone humanity, can exist. This is especially notable when God creates the earth, or matter. In other cases, God would speak and things would come into being, and what God says or does with that created thing would imply God's reason for creating it. But on the third day, God speaks and creates the earth and the seas. Then, separately, God speaks to earth so that it will be capable of bringing forth life or plants with seeds. It's as if the two are separate, that God creating the earth is his own thing and God enabling this earth to bring forth life is yet another thing, two separate things with its own reasons. Now, God does create human beings when God created everything else, including every other living creature on land and the entire world is flourishing and filled with life. It is then that God says, let's create humanity in our image to have dominion over all living things. And God presents the completed world to humanity and gives them a command to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over all living things, which by the way is what humans do whether we like it or not. We are so adaptive that we were able to inhabit every land-based environment and with our intelligence we have gained a mastery over the material world in ways that no other creatures have and our actions have profoundly affected every living thing. But our mastery and actions have been in many ways harmful. But that's for the episode when we will explore the fall of humanity. The point here is, God speaks as he presents the completed world to humanity, and God does not speak about the purpose of the world. Rather, God speaks about humanity fulfilling their purpose when presented with this world. It's not about what the world is supposed to do for us, but what we're supposed to do regarding it. Or to put it more simply and perhaps more provocatively, it may be that the universe was not created for the sake of humanity. Rather, it's the reverse. Humanity was created for the sake of the universe. But again, that's for the next episode. And now we come to what I consider to be the most compelling point that the Genesis creation account presents regarding the meaning of it all. Each time God creates, God then declares that this is good. Again, God does not wait until he creates living creatures, let alone humanity, to declare that the world is now good. When there is light and darkness, when the sky separates the seas of possibilities, when sea and land form and later brings forth seeds of life, when sun, moon, and the stars shine in the heavens, when living creatures flourish in the seas and the sky, when living creatures move about on the earth and under the earth, each time God says, it is good. And the word, the meaning of good here has a primal sense to it, pleasant, delightful, valuable, excellent. In a word, God loves it. Some translations often miss this, but when God creates everything there is, including humanity, the Genesis narrative suddenly breaks with its usual descriptive tone and exclaims, and look, it was very good, as if to invite the readers to share in God's delight. But think back to what God created. What delighted God so? What does Genesis invite its readers to share in that delight? That 
things happen, that time flows, that there is space so that different things can exist, that things can have forms, that life is possible, that there is order and regularity in the heavens and the sun, moon and the stars shine there, that there are myriads of living things, things on land, things that creep, things that fly, things that swarm in the seas, and the monstrous things that dwell in the depths, that there is light, that there is darkness, that there is a clear sky and the endless possibilities it holds, and that there is fathomless depth of inconceivable possibilities. Each of that and every one of that is good. Now, the gods of the neighboring peoples of the ancient Hebrews made the world and reigned over it by battling the monsters that rose from the dark, fathomless depths. But in Genesis, all of that, including the depths and the monsters therein, is God speaking. All of that is God's speech, the Logos, even if the abyssal depths may be beyond our human speech and understanding. And all of that, all of that, is good. And that is the meaning of it all. Things do not have a purpose that it fulfills like a gear or a cog in a machine. God in Genesis does not coldly assess how each thing he created is functioning merely as a part of some larger goal. God created each thing so that they can be themselves, even as they are a part of the whole creation, and that is what delights God. To put it differently, the reason why God creates each thing is for there to be something new, a new addition that God will love. And so God does. God creates each new thing. God speaks each new level to reality like a poet reciting the next stanza or a composer adding in a new voice or a melody and then exclaiming, this is good. Genesis suggests that the reason God creates, to put it most simply, is so that a world exists, a world with endless possibilities, with its own story, with its own things. And we, humanity, the image of God, is created to encounter them all, all that God is speaking, and that is very good. Yet, this is a very challenging statement, because it is by no means obvious to us that all that is very good. Because sometimes, our lives are such that we think, perhaps it would have been better if there was no world at all, if nothing happened, if nothing else existed, a world without life, a world without monsters, a world without pain. And it is this that leads us to the next set of topics, the creation of humanity, Adam and Eve, and their fall. But for the next week, we will have a bonus episode for some housekeeping and to wrap up our exploration of Genesis and creation by covering some topics and questions that just didn't quite fit in the main episodes. So please continue to support this series by following, subscribing, and sharing. You can also now support this series by buying me coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com at paulsoc. If you're interested, the link is provided at the end of the episode description.